You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have John O'Connor. He's the founder of a company called Gene Food, and the website is mygenefood.com. So, John, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, so what's the premise of Gene Food? What's the idea for the company? Uh, the idea behind Gene Food is sort of uh, bioindividuality, which is the idea that um, people, both in terms of nutrition and, and medicine, respond differently to, to different inputs. You know, so there's a lot of debate out there in nutrition circles about, you know, like, what's the perfect diet for, you know, pers- someone to be eating? You know, should, should you go paleo? Should you go vegan? And there's uh, strong proponents on, on all sides. And, you know, many of these diets have, have, a lot of, um, have a lot of principles associated with them that are, that are sort of overarchingly healthy. But um, we believe that the genetic differences between us give us the sort of the code, the answers to the test in terms of what diet a certain individual is going to perform best on. And so we've created, a, um, we've created an algorithm that can, that can parse genetic data and assign people into one of 20 foundational diet categories. And that's the idea. Yeah, I was going to ask you how many, yeah, I was going to ask you how many categories there are. So can you describe some of the categories and what's the differentiating elements between them? Yeah. So we have, um, for example, like one of the diet categories is uh, Okinawan and Okinawan is a plant-based diet. The inspiration behind the diet is this community in in Japan, that's uh, part of what's called the blue zone. Some of your listeners may be familiar with the idea of a blue zone. It's basically a, a region of the world, or in some there are a blue zone. There's a blue zone in uh, Loma Linda, California, as well. But people in these regions live to be 100 years old at a much greater rate than than the rest of the world. And so it's it's the a blue zone is a region that's marked by longevity. And there's certain things we we can study with how these people carry on their lives. Um, and one of our diets is named after the Okinawan region, which is a, which is a, uh, sort of a, one of the best known blue zones. And it's, it's basically a plant-based diet, um, that's centered around, you know, starchy, non-processed carbs, maybe s- small amounts of fish, um, a little more liberal with the glycemic load, like the, 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 the blood sugar load of the, of the food that these people are eating. And the idea is that the people that we put into the Okinawan category are probably the people who are going to have a reduced ability to deal well with a high fat diet. So they're the people that are probably not going to be as well equipped to deal with like a ketogenic diet, for example, which is something that I know that you've spoken a decent amount lately uh, about on your podcast. And there are specific genetic markers you can look at 
to give to, to give an idea. It doesn't always come out this way. I mean, genetics is not the whole story. There's a there's a topic known as epigenetics, which is also important, which is essentially your lifestyle, you know, what kind of medications you've been taking, et cetera. But there are these markers you can look at, um, like PCSK9 is one of them. Uh, PCSK9 is a gene that's associated with basically breaking down the body's ability to clear LDL, lipoproteins. And um, for, for people that carry the majority variant of this gene, their ability to clear LDL is reduced. And we've seen in studies that people that have yeah. variants in this gene, their, their ability to, to clear LDL is increased, and they, they generally suffer from a lot less heart disease. So um, well, I, I understand that you know people are different metabolically, epigenetically, et cetera. So how do you silo people? So someone comes to you and they say, hey, I want to be healthier and eat better for you know my particular phenotype or my genetics. What procedure do they go through and then how do you silo them? Well, right now we're using uh, raw genetic data from 23andMe and Ancestry. So we're, we're, we're taking, you know, there's about 20 million people that have that data. And so we're, we're, there's 66 markers, 66, they're called SNPs within those files that we can look at. And, um, you know, PCSK9 is just one of them. It's just one that it is uh, one that your listeners may have heard of. But, you know, we look at others. Um, APOE4 is one that we look at. Mm. Um, can, you, can you talk about AP, APOE4 for just a brief minute? Because it's recently become such a, uh, an important marker to look for. So talk about maybe what it is and the consequences of why it's important. Yeah, well, there's a lot of controversy surrounding APOE4. But um, the, our, our, our opinion is that, well, first of all, people that may have heard of APOE4 because people that carry one or two copies of this, of this genetic variant in the APOE gene are at an increased risk for developing um, dementia and Alzheimer's. And the nutritional implications of that, of that polymorphism are basically that there's an, there seems to be an inflammatory response in carriers of that SNP when eating a diet that's higher in fat. So um, from 10,000 feet, you know, people that are APOE4 carriers are probably going to want to be a little more cautious with the types of fats that they eat. And at a minimum, and at a minimum, move their, their dietary intake of fat more towards, you know, some of the healthier omega-3 um, polyunsaturated fats as opposed to just straight um, high intake of, of, you know, fatty beef, um, coconut products, et cetera. So, but we don't, having said that, we don't want to hyper-focus on any one SNP. We have a medley of SNPs that we look out for these fat categories. But um, I didn't want to, yeah to go too deep into it just take a quick overview of why it's important and why it's you know in people's minds lately so you did that that's good so all right so you so someone will get their genetic data from 23andme or other sources then you'll take the data and you're looking for these SNPs. so again what's your process from there so the the three basic you know top level ways we're looking at these at these genes is protein metabolism carbohydrate metabolism and then fat metabolism and um the, by, by breaking down the response to each of those inputs, like one of the one of the ones we look at that's probably a little bit less common is histamine. So um, certain markers in the histamine genes will put you in a different protein category than than some others. But um, it's 66 markers, and the and the the macros, the macronutrient inputs are the big are the big dividers. Without getting into the weeds of you know the of the mechanism of these individual SNPs. Okay, so and then 
once you identify the the SNPs that someone has, you know, how do you customize the diet? Do you tell them what to eat and what to avoid, and you know, how far do you take it? What kind of recommendations? Right. Yeah. So so we mentioned the Okinawan, so that's going to be more of a plant based diet. But there's you know there's there's paleo there's diets that are more paleo. I mean there's diets. We have a diet type called um, mosaic, which is uh, for people that have stronger fat metabolism that don't carry some of these markers that we just talked about. Um, you know, we will, we'll put them on a diet in terms of macronutrient recommendations. That's closer to 35, 40% fat. You know, somebody that's in the Okinawan category is going to be down closer to 10. And then what we're launching in our version two is we're launching a recipe database that is geared towards each diet type. So once you have your diet type signed, you can then go to the site and there will be recipes that will be created that are in keeping with the, the macro ratios that we've given you in your report. So the report gives you overall macronutrient breakdown, foods to avoid, staple foods, um, tips for preparing food in terms of um, certain foods that are high glycemic can be made a little, a little more tolerable by certain preparation methods. So we get into, we get into the top level macros, but into some of the weeds of of how best to go about, you know, approaching food with this information as well. So uh, any examples, case studies of people and <clears throat> what changes they made or were suggested and what happened to them? Uh, we just launched the product like three months ago. So we don't have any, any case studies at, 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 this, at this particular point. We do speak with a lot of customers and, um, you know, and, and are privy to some of their biomarkers that maybe some other, some other companies might not be, but um, that they've shared with us. But uh, I think we're we're a little too early in the game for uh, for case studies at this point. Well, what kind of generic feedback are you getting? I know this is just uh, anecdotal, but you know anything that surprises you? Like, what are you hearing? I mean, uh, one of the some of the things that that surprise me are the responses that people have to these to the histamine genes. So when we when we see people and we've put them in um, a a low histamine grouping. Um, it, it, it always surprises me just how, to this point, how accurate that's been in terms of how they're dealing with, you know, allergy, uh, food sensitivity, issues with histamine and food, but also food sensitivities that can vary by location. So just anecdotally, we've heard from people who are customers who've said, look, I came back in one of these low histamine diet types, and I've noticed that I have food sensitivities in Dayton, Ohio that I don't have when I'm in Asheville. And, you know, sure. the, the, the rationale behind that would be that these are people who do a poor job of clearing histamine because they have lower levels of this enzyme called um, diamine oxidase, which is, uh, which is genetic. It's coded for the AOC1 gene. And so, therefore, if they're in an environment where they have really, really nasty seasonal allergies, their body's producing a lot of histamine. Any additional histamine that's added to that bucket by food is going to become reactive over time. And then they move to a location where they don't have that same immune system stimulation in their environment, and they have much more tolerance for food. And that's, that's a, a theory that's, that's certainly new, um, but it is supported by uh, some papers that have been written on histamine intolerance that have appeared in uh, like the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, as well as by the clinicians that are out there. Um, there's a doctor, uh, Janice Joneha, who's spoken quite a bit about that in her writings. And so it's been kind of interesting to, to talk to people who, um, who have had those experiences. You know, we can see that in their genetics. Okay. 
So if you're in a stressed state, if you're very sensitive to, you know, if you have a high histamine response, that kind of throws off how your diet affects you and perhaps it can cause certain uh, foods that would be okay to not be okay. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's the, the histamine intolerance world and the, the, the genes that are associated with some of these immune issues like IL-8, IL-6, um, it's, it's not all uh, traditional food allergy. Like, you know, like you have, a, you, you have like a peanut allergy. It's this cumulative, this cumulative process where you have a few different factors that are adding to this, this, this histamine pool. And, um, you know, and, and, and one of them can throw the whole system way out of whack is the best way I can describe it. Food, I think food only becomes an issue or food usually becomes an issue in those situations when there's been some kind of an insult to the gut, to the gut microbiome. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why you could have an excess of histamine. You, know, you could have um, the putrefaction of certain proteins that you can't digest that's feeding bacteria that are producing histamine. It could go in the reverse with certain carbohydrate sources that you can't digest that are producing histamine. You could have... Um, issues with mold that are put, putting the immune system on, you know, on high alert and histamine then becomes just one more thing that, that can't be handled after, after the system's been overwhelmed. So it's, it's, it, with these types of issues, it's tough to identify one sort of glaring, you know, food allergy that you can exclude. It's really this multifactorial thing. All right. So you'll suggest, um, so you'll give people their results. I mean, and then what? What do you do from there? Are you making suggestions or are you actually providing meals? Like, where do you want to take this? Is it just recommendations or, you know, what's like the full experience going to look like? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I think the full experience over time, we get, we get really just flooded with so many. Uh, we produce a lot of blog content and the, we've, we've had a, a, a good response to the blog thus far in terms of just engagement, people contacting us, uh, readership. And I think that we do get so many questions that I think that the ultimate, the ultimate move will be some sort of a small health coaching program as well that we're going to pair with this. So for the people who are really interested in working with our team, you get the recommendations, you have the recipe bank, we're giving people the biomarkers that we would consider that we, that we think they might want to consider discussing with their, with their physician. And then on top of that, um, I think there's a role there for some kind of health advocacy to kind of help people through the process of changing habits, you know, building a lifestyle that can, that can be, um, that's well suited to their, you know, to their individual situation. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. What, what is the service going to look like six months or a year from now? Is that the vision or what's your vision now that you're getting all this feedback? Well, I think six months to a year from now, the, 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 we're going to roll out additional points of analysis genetically. Um, one of the one of the things we're, we're, we want to look at is uh, sterile absorption, which I think is really relevant to the conversations that are happening with the carnivore diet. So um, we can touch on that if you'd like. That's a, definitely an interesting place for people to to look genetically. Um, can that? Yeah, I know the impact. carnivore diet is like uh, new and hot. So what's what's your uh, experience with that? Well, I, my, my I haven't tried the carnivore diet. I don't think that I would be well suited. Uh, you know, genetically to the carnivore diet myself. But having said that, I have a great deal of sympathy for people who have food sensitivities. I think that, you know, I'm not, we, the, the, the cool thing about what we do is we're not trying to debunk anybody. We're not here to say this diet's right or this diet's wrong. I think that there's diets that can be right for every individual. And the people that are reporting success on the carnivore diet, you know, 
if, if that's working for them, you know, that's great. I think the genetic explanation behind why the carnivore diet may be successful for some people is a rare condition called cytosterolemia, which is characterized by changes in the ABC and ABCG8, ABCG8 and ABCG5 genes. And the role of those genes is to kick out of the gut wall plant sterile. So like you have cholesterol, which is animal fat, and then you have plant sterile, which is plant fat. And generally speaking, we don't absorb the plant sterile. It gets, it, it's almost like the gut is like a bouncer at a bar. Um, it, kicks, it kicks it out. It's temporarily absorbed into the wall of the gut, and then it's kicked back out. But in some people, they hyperabsorb these plant sterols. And the, so you'll, you'll, you'll look at a normal blood work would have like cytosterol levels, which are the, the fats in oats and avocado and vegetable oil might be like two at a two you know, milligrams per deciliter. But somebody with cytosterolemia, they might be at 10 or 15 or 20. And what happens is, is when they've absorbed this sterile, it, it, it tends to affect their joint health. You know, the, these fatty deposits will form and attach to, to tendons and ligaments. And some of these people have terrible debil debilitating joint pain. Well, that's the exact issue that a lot of the most famous advocates of the carnivore diet, like the Bell Brothers, who are the power lifters in LA, or Michaela Peterson, who's the, um, the daughter of Jordan Peterson, the, the Canadian intellectual, they've complained about just being ravaged by joint pain. And so one of the, one of the things that, that we think is a possible explanation is like, why would somebody have sensitivity to all plants? What's the possible reasoning behind that? You could say lectin, but there's not a lot of lectin in green leafy vegetables. And so we think that a possible explanation is heavy mutations in the ABCG8 genes and a possible un underdiagnosed cytosterolemia, because nobody really has access to these blood panels that, that measure the levels of sterol in the blood. And so even just for the casual observer, if you're taking a, if you're doing a gene food, a gene food panel, you know, one of the things that we can steer you on is like, is avocado healthy for you? Is vegetable oil healthy for you? I mean, it's healthy for you in theory, but if you're hyper-absorbing plant sterile, it might not be as right. healthy for you. So, uh, you know, that's, that in a nutshell is sort of, you know, is, is, is our mission statement. But so we're launching that, that as a metric. We have some other metrics we're excited about. And then, I, you know, down the line, I think health coaching and, uh, you know, that might be in the next year. It's going to be a very edited program, but um, some health coaching, I think, would be, would be valuable uh, for our. So what's a. How much of an effect have you seen because of diet, dietary interventions informed by your genes, like personally, and again, anecdotally from other people, if you don't have much yet, you know, you must have tested this on yourself quite a bit or friends. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, we, we, my whole team kind of eats, breathes and sleeps this stuff. I mean, we're, 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 we're pretty big nerds as, as you could probably already tell from this interview, but um, for me, the, the big, the big ones have been, the histamine genes. I mean, I've had experiences living in living in cities where it's unbelievable how much of an impact just my physical environment can have on what's happening with, to me with food in terms of how I react to food. And um, you know, so 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 those are those are big uh, for me in terms of uh, just keeping an eye on on the freshness of what I'm eating. You know, steering away from you know for for as a, for example, going out. I don't drink a ton, but if I'm going out socially and drinking, I'm going to choose gin or vodka or scotch 
you know, a hundred times before I choose red wine once. And that, and that's because those, those liquors are, you know, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily healthy, but they're a little lower in histamine than, uh, than red wine or beer. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with, um, with histamine and they don't, they don't even know it. Um, huh. also just, just the way I, the way I approach dietary fat, I do a ton of, you know, I've become very interested in lipids and lipidology. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that I've, Take, there's a lot of value for me in understanding, you know, the interplay between LP little a, which is a special subclass of like ApoB lipoprotein, which is just basically, to put it plainly, kind of a, a dangerous, a, a particularly dangerous type of, you know, bad cholesterol, you know, lipoprotein. Right. And I've seen, you can see in your, you can see in these genetic panels when you, it's a, it's a genetic marker that you can look at. You can see the LPA gene and there's a family of genes. And, you know, for me, I've noticed after seeing it in my genetics that I also have slightly elevated LP little a, you know, in my in my lab, and I've written about the implications of that on the blog. And so, if you have elevated LP little a, you need to be especially vigilant um, with this whole plant sterile issue, because these these oxidized plant fats they bind preferentially to these bad these bad LDL particles, and it's the combination of the absorption and the oxidation of the of the sterile binding to these markers like these lipoprotein A that is the risk factor for heart disease, right? So me knowing that I'm absorbing a little more sterile, not to the cytosterolemia level, but me knowing that I'm absorbing a little more sterile, and then me also knowing that I have LP little A, which is basically like the catcher's mitt that's sitting there to catch these oxidized phospholipids. Boom, that combination right there, you know, I don't eat a lot of nuts. I don't eat a lot of seeds. Um, you know, I I don't eat vegetable oil. Can you, can you feel a difference because of your interventions or no? Yeah, I mean, where I feel where I feel the biggest difference, uh, the the thing that I'm, you know, some some of the biohacking community, you get these guys who are just like badass weightlifters. They're trying to bench like 300 pounds, and and that's that's awesome. For me, what I what I want is really I want consistent mood and energy. And absolutely, I find that when I'm dialed in on what I'm eating and I'm paying attention to to these rules that I've created for myself, that, that my mood, that my mood, my energy, you know, my sleep, just my quality of life is, um, is definitely enhanced. And, and furthermore, I'm, lo- I'm lucky to be in a position to do a lot of lab testing. So my labs look a lot better too. You know, when, when I'm, when I'm on these, when, I, when I'm dialed into what I know I need to do for my own body, you know, it, 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 bear, it the, the benefits of that appear not only in my, you know, these other areas, but also in the, in the biomarkers. Um, so. And then um, with the histamine response, I'm just curious, have you identified symptoms that are obvious and non-obvious where people could tell, ooh, I'm having a histamine response to what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to throw out, you know, one of the things that we want to discourage, discourage is this whole sort of like obsession with uh, this reductionist sort of like, okay, the, you know, we have this one issue with histamine and, or, or it's saturated fat or whatever, but because I think that a lot of these things work in concert, but, you know, I think, I think a, a big unrecognized cause of, of stress and, uh, um, you know, sort of a lack of focus that seems to be really systemic in our society are these, are these, these food and histamine issues for a lot of people. Um, I find that I'm just much more focused, uh, much more dialed in, um, you know, feel less stress uh, when I've, when I, when I have this histamine issue under control than when I don't. And, um, and because of the fact that we have 
this rise in environmental toxicity, which is also triggering the immune system. You know, I think that these that these modern day issues sort of act in tandem and in concert. So you can have, you know, air pollution, mold toxicity, et cetera, sort of putting an extra burden on people in their lives. And then you combine that with some of these histamine issues. And I think that that's sort of like the perfect storm for uh, for for some of the for some of the stuff that that comes up uh, pretty regularly uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, in terms, terms of yeah. Well, very good. Well, what's what's the best way for people to get in touch and to talk to you and uh, you know and try out the program and everything? So the the, the website is at uh, mygenefood.com. It's www.mygenefood.com. And if they want to get in touch, um, you know, a contact form through the site is is uh, probably the best way. Just send us an email. Uh, we're on Instagram, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's through the website. So. All right, that's great. Well, John, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.